This is the Reading Teacher's Lounge, where listeners can eavesdrop on professional conversations between elementary reading teachers. We're passionate about literacy and strive to find strategies to reach all learners. Shannon and Mary are neighbors who realized that they were literacy soul sisters at a dinner in their Atlanta neighborhood. Once they started chatting about reading, they haven't really stopped. Come join the conversation. Hey listeners, welcome back to the Reading Teacher's Lounge. We're listening to Season 2, Episode 5, and we're here addressing more listener questions for you all, and I'm very happy to share that I have a guest with me today. (laughs) I don't know if I'm a guest, but she said we, and that means I'm back. This is Shannon. Shannon is back with us. She's doing better and slowly recovering, and we're just so happy to have her and her expertise with us today. (laughs) So we'll see how much expertise expertise I bring to the lounge. today. Um, my body injuries are healing from the car wreck, but I actually ended up having a concussion too. And I have lingering effects from that that are taking a really long time to get better. And that is very frustrating because I like my brain and I want my brain to work and I'm having difficulty concentrating and thinking of words. So I'm here, but I'm not quite here. You're here and you're here as best as you can be. And we're all going to just accept you with grace today. Thank you. Just as our listeners have accepted me with grace (laughs) lately on my own episodes. It's been a little weird being solo. So I'm happy to have you back. Claps to Mary. Her solo episodes were awesome. And I just need to say thank you, Mary, for being such a good partner. Mm. Um. Everybody needs a Mary in their life. Aww. My dad was visiting, helping after the car accident, and he ended up meeting Mary. And he then told me about the yep. Mary in his life. His Mary is named Bruce, and they have collaborated for decades um, in the business that. world and in, in their field. And they, um, he said that they collaborate on a lot of projects and they hold each other accountable and they pick up the slack when one or the other one is going through different life struggles. And you did the same thing for me. And, um, he said, you, you found your Bruce. I love it. (laughs) And so, um, just call me Bruce. I like it. (laughs) Well, everybody listening probably has a Mary. So go find your Mary, um, after you listen to this podcast and tell them, thank you. I appreciate that. Of course, it always comes when other people have done for you. So, Previously, I've had lots of people hold and lift me up when I needed it. And so when you go through some of your own personal struggles, I think that it really makes you aware of how much other people need you. And so for me, uh, it's given me um, a lot more confidence in asking for help when I need it. And so I've also come to realize that like when people need help they don't always have the words or even like the mental capacity to ask for help and you need to either be that person or find people who could just pick up the slack for you I think that's it's so valuable and when I was teaching I had some really amazing teachers who did that during a really rough patch for me so you know take care of each other and Give yourself grace at the same time. So the, the, I'm going through life lessons right now. I was talking to a coworker today who said she was praying for me. And I said, I'm just having a really hard time. And she said, I'm here to help. And I said, I don't like getting help. And she's like, I know the self-sufficient people never do. That's so true. But this is just God showing you that you need to learn how to accept help and not do everything all the time. And yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I haven't learned that lesson. I am in the process 
of learning it and each day, well, some days are good and some days are bad. So I am here tonight because we have received lots of listener questions and emails. First, we've see, received some, um, thank y'all so much for sending ones that said y'all were thinking of me and praying for me and my recovery. I really, really appreciate it so much. And then, um, we've also had some questions about specific things and Mary, um, answered quite a few of those that were geared more to towards her expertise with tutoring and Orton-Gillingham. But y'all, sometimes I need some help too. So thank <laughs> goodness Shannon's stepping up to the plate in this one. <laughs> so we received um, some questions. Um, Lady Carrington, that's probably not your real name, but that was what you um, coded your review, your fantastic review on um, Apple Podcast. Um, that was the name that you said. And so I wanted to answer your questions that you would post on there. And then we're also going to answer a few questions that we got on Facebook and Instagram. So, um, Lady Carrington asked about our thoughts on Lucy Calkins units of study and also about, um, comprehension research. And mm-hmm. so I have a lot of experience with both of those being a classroom teacher as well, um, as a reading specialist in school setting for a long time. And so I wanted to answer my thoughts on those. So I'll start with Lucy Calkins. Yeah. Okay. Um, we do use Lucy Calkins units of study, just the writing, not the reading piece in my district. And it has mixed reviews among my coworkers. Okay. And I think that is because of the way it was rolled out as an initiative. Personally, I am a huge fan of Lucy Calkins. I bought her books before she was even like super cool and everybody knew her name. Mm-hmm. And actually I saw her at a conference oh. one time. Yes. And she's, y'all, she's like super petite. And she was in this like super cool, like leather, black leather jacket. And she looked like five foot tall. And I saw her from across the room and I was like, that's Lucy Calkins. Yeah. And I just like did like a death stare at her. And like, finally she had to kind of look at me and just do a little halfway. <laughs> that was my interaction with Lucy Calkins. Maybe one day our podcast will get super big and she'll be a guest. Oh but, man, that would be amazing. Yes. I bought her books, the art of teaching reading and the art of teaching writing 10, 15 years ago, not 10 years ago, 15 years ago, closer. Yeah. Um, early in my career, they're really big. Yeah. One is like, a hunter green cover and one is like a navy blue cover and i can't remember which one the reading or writing is the blue or the green one but they are fantastic books she really i love the titles of them because she called it the art of teaching yeah. those literacy subjects and it is an art because you have to um be so creative to tie and so many like well, a teaching you're modeling everything. Yes, at the very and teaching reading right? is really hard, and teaching writing is really. Good. And I like that Lucy Calkins considered it an art form because it really is, and it requires a lot of creativity. So going back to how the initiative was rolled out in our school district, yeah, a lot of teachers walked away from the initial trainings um, when it was first brought on as a curriculum that it was a scripted program. And I think that would make Hmm. Lucy Calkins cringe cringe in her cool leather jacket Um, (laughs) because it's not supposed to be scripted. Like if you read her original books, like she thinks of it as an art. She would never want teachers as professionals to script something. And we, I had colleagues that 
had the manual in their lap and were reading verbatim the mini lesson from the book. And I know that that is not how Lucy wanted it to come across. I am actually familiar with Lucy Calkins too, because I taught it when I taught kindergarten, which is now 12 years ago. So, um, but what I wanted to say was that it was modeled so well for me because I was co-teaching with another teacher who was an excellent writer in her own right. And she was really good at following all programs with fidelity, which was really good too. She was so creative. So the kids would just be so entranced with the stories that she would begin to tell. And then as the sitting on the carpet, the kids would be adding details to the story and adding to the mini lesson. And by the time their mini lesson was started, the kids were just racing to their seats to begin their writing, which is I'm sure exactly what Lucy Calkins envisioned. Yes. With the art of the... Teaching writing. teaching writing, of course, yeah. So you hit the nail on the head because you said that that teacher, that that co-teacher you had was excellent writing teacher, Mm -hmm. okay, in her own right. So teachers are at different levels, just like students are, okay? And um, some teachers are really comfortable writers, and some teachers are not. They're at just a varying continuum levels of writing themselves. Confession, I am not. When I'm like caught on the spot trying to come up with even a sentence, which maybe some of the listeners will know, it is really difficult for me on the spot. I have to think about it. I need to write it down. So for a lesson, like a Lucy Calkins mini lesson, I would need to plan out my ideas rather than just doing it on the spot. I know that. So I could see where frustration could be with some teachers um, who are lacking in the creativity department because that's me. <laughs> and also, I think when they read the mini lessons that are in the manual, yeah. okay, they might have missed um, the front little section where she, in the introduction, she says, this is a mixture of like 10 to 20 different classrooms at all different grade, you know, at all the same grade level, but at different types of schools and things like that and many different teaching styles. And they've morphed them into one pretend classroom that you're sort of a fly on the wall and you're watching them teach writing all year. And so I think that's why um, the manuals go into so much detail of what the beginning of the lesson looks like and the mid-lesson teaching point and then that closure. But she, I don't believe that she is expecting... Every person who picks up that units of study mini lesson book that she's expecting your lesson to look exactly like the one in the book. I think it's just a way for if you're not comfortable as a writing teacher, you can be, you know, I think she was trying to think, how do I, how do I take what I do, which is art of teaching writing and somehow make some sort of program, you know, to, so that it could be sent to a lot of different schools and a lot of different places. And so I think that's what she did. But it's not meant to be a script. I really, truly believe that. It's just you're observing this other teacher teaching writing and then as if you were really there. And that's why there's so much detail about the writing lesson so that then you can spark your own ideas and put your own students on that carpet or at their writing places. And you can think, okay, how can I um, address this teaching point for my students um, in my own way? I think that that is so key. So many teachers get so turned off because there are some very, very, very scripted programs where you're really not supposed to deviate at all. But there is an art and a finesse to creating and sparking excitement within the students of your classroom. Mm -hmm. And I think that Lucy Calkins really kind of hits the nail on the head with that and gives teachers that 
opportunity to be creative and to um, just not do the, so much of the science of it, but truly the art yes. of it. That's how I was trained um, in my undergrad program. So I went to a liberal arts college. And so a lot of our focus in our teaching program was on the art of teaching and a lot of reflective, excuse me, reflective strategies and reflective thinking and how can you be creative in creating your own thematic units and things like that. And so then um, it was a little bit of a... Culture um, shock. Ultra shock when I did um, my special education degree, and they were talking so much about using scripted programs because it could be scientifically, it was research based, it, it had research to back it up, um, and I didn't quite have enough experience under my belt to really have the classroom management that I needed at that point to understand how the script would go. So that's why we do student teaching, though, so that you can also observe good teachers doing, you know, these kind of scripted programs because we do need to know. We're kind of learning on the spot as teachers what the new best practices are. And there is nothing wrong with scripted programs. It's just making sure that you are comfortable with the fidelity of the program that you're teaching. And the fidelity of units of study is not to follow the mini lesson as it was scheduled, uh, as it was written, but to make sure that you're, you're addressing the teaching points yeah, and that you sort of follow the bend of the units because they um, are they're meant to scaffold the students into more and more complex writing as the genre unit uh, keeps going. And so that's really the fidelity points that she wants us to follow. At least that's what I interpreted from the manuals and things like that. And so if you are in, if you have units of study and you're feeling a little bit ambivalent or a little bit confused about it, what I would suggest is, um, Watch the videos that came with it. Um, mm. There's a lot of extra resources um, on the CD-ROM and also the online resources. And um, use the anchor chart resources that are in there. And also just know, like she says in a bunch of those videos, that like year one is going to be messy. And year two, you get a little bit better. And then year three, you go deeper. And that's where I'm finding it. So nice. I don't... Um, do exactly... Mine doesn't look exactly like the lesson that's in the book. Because... I'm different than her and yep. I'm different from the other teachers that are in the writing project. Um, and my students are different too, but yep. I try to get my students to be excited to walk away from the mini lesson and go be excited to write. I yeah. do mix in other writing resources that I've used successfully over the years. Um, one of my favorite books is called the most wonderful writing lessons ever by Mar Barbara Maraconda. And that I was not a good writing teacher when I first got out of college and that book helped me so much because in that book, um, she has a lot of guided practice exercises for the students where mm. instead of working on a writing piece day after day after day, you might just pull out um, one paragraph and you're working on character details. Mm -hmm. And you just work on that in isolation, but then you teach the students how to transfer what they learned about character details and that one little exercise to then character details in their own story cool. or setting details or whatever. And she has um, the most wonderful writing lessons. One is uh, fiction. And then she has a nonfiction book um, that's really, really cool too that teaches how to all the little components of the um, – of the genre of nonfiction yeah. and how it's structured, um, how to teach all those 
um, to students and help them learn it sort of in a guided practice exercise and then be able to apply it to their own writing projects. So I, I, I kind of wove those in with Lucy awesome. Calkins. So I'm going to throw another resource out yeah, there. And the that is one you mentioned. The Writing Revolution, which I have just recently. Yeah, I, I mentioned it in a previous episode when we did our authentic writing episode. Um, and I really love this resource. It came out last year. Judith, who I don't have the book in front of me, but I think that the last name starts with an H. I will definitely link to it in the show notes. But um, she talks about weaving writing throughout all of your subject areas. And it was kind of eye-opening about how you could model for your students um, really great writing examples throughout all of the subject areas that you teach. So I highly recommend that one as well. Ever since you mentioned it, I've seen it um, come up a lot on social media. Oh yeah. So that book really is making great. the rounds. Good. So, okay. That's Lucy Calkins. We'll link to her resources and the other ones we talked about in the show notes. So I'm going to go to the next question, which was about the best research that we found, um, for teaching comprehension. Mm-hmm. I will say what I'm talking about is not any research study that I've read it is just action research of based on what I've done with students for about 15 years. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, but when I first started teaching, I found the most lovely books called mosaic of thought and strategies that work. Mm-hmm. And so that was in the early two thousands when they came out mm-hmm. and those books, um, because I found them early in my career, like really formed the basis of my teaching and the foundation of my teaching. At that same conference, I saw Lucy Calkins. I actually met the authors of Strategies That Work. Awesome. And I was telling them, I was like, I can't even separate my reading instruction from y'all's because it's y'all had that much of an impact just in your book, and it's become part of my teaching oh, that's all the time. such a compliment. Wow. Yes, and they were fabulous in person. Cool. Um, so anyway, um, okay. So Mosaic of Thought and Strategies That Work both both focus on comprehension strategies Mm -hmm. rather than comprehension skills. And I'm going to talk about that in a second. And they also, um, they were my first introduction to the gradual release of responsibility model, which is that modeling first and the teacher's doing more of it. And then you start to do guided practice where you and the students are doing it together, but you're building a lot of metacognition during that time. So the students are aware of what you're doing and why you're doing it and how it affects their learning. Wow. And then eventually moving into the independent practice. And um, that that's just how I teach now because I started teaching that way because of those books. I'm going to um, do a quick, like, sidetrack because um, I was just having a conversation with a parent about this gradual release of responsibility um, because I've been tutoring a student who has um, some executive functioning t- issues and he was just trying to get um, you know back on track but I had a conversation with mom about how while we're teaching him these really finite skills of organizing his backpack of where the papers need to go in which folder. And sometimes it's, he's in sixth grade right now, but his developmental um, uh, stage that he's in for organizing is just a lot lower than his peers. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have a learning disability. He does have some ADHD. And so we talked a lot about, okay, what is appropriate for your individual kid 
to be able to do as far as organization? Is he actually being lazy or does he still need a lot of support in this area? And how, as the group of teachers and adults responsible for his education, how can we all discover where the gradual release of responsibility comes in in this particular area? So you were pulling some responsibility back on the adults to model for him. If, since he has not applied those skills independently yet, yep. you were trying to tell the mom that y'all needed to model more and yep. do more and then eventually guide him until be, he can apply it himself. To be able to do it. And what we're really talking about is like cleaning out his backpack and making sure each week he has what he needs in his folders and if it's in his folder, why didn't it get turned in? And I'm sure that a lot of parents and teachers who are in older grades especially are shaking their heads saying yes. But don't forget that it's not necessarily um, just a little side note. I, I'm feeling a little passionate about this topic right now. But um, kids who have ADHD and some other different language-based disorders, whether they're diagnosed or not diagnosed, they may not be on the same track um, brain-wise with all of their peers. So their prefrontal cortex, remember, may not be as developed as um, their peers. And so it's still really important to handhold to the point where you can have that gradual release of responsibility. So I'm not saying do everything for them at all, but um, you do need to be really aware that some kids are more capable than others. And as soon as you start to notice that that one kid in your class is being really lazy, maybe do a perspective change and see if you can say, mm, is his prefrontal cortex functioning at the same <laughs> level as his peers? Probably only Mary will phrase it that way, but what she's hey. saying is take a second look and see if maybe that's a way to differentiate. Like gradual release is like natural differentiation because other students are going to need more modeling and then other students might be read, more ready for independence. Don't you love it when Shannon can interpret what I'm talking about? <laughs> so fantastic. Even with a concussion. Even with a concussion. No, but even better. Your brain is even more superior than it was. No, no. Well, what I was going to also say is what I love about this comprehension um, book that you have is that it's modeling that metacognition and how you think about or how you're actually going through the process of thinking about what you're learning and how your brain is interpreting all of that information. And it's those little itty-bitty steps and incremental steps that we actually need to be explicit in teaching the students in our class about. Some kids are able to really understand it, um, you know, from the very beginning. Some kids need a little extra coaching, and some kids actually need you to walk through the entire process. Yes. And so... Going back to like strategies versus skills, what I found in my own personal action research is that teaching these comprehension strategies has a lot more success with my students than just discrete comprehension skills. So traditionally, teachers will have a little week-long, two-week-long unit on compare and contrast yep. or sequencing or story mapping or main idea. Main yep. idea is the favorite one. Everybody uses main idea. Everybody, every teacher's got a main idea, you know, folder with resources in it. Mm -hmm. That's comprehension skills, okay? What I like about the strategies that work, and it's actually two books I'm referencing. Strategies that work is one book, and Mosaic of Thought is another one. Mm -hmm. But 
they focus on comprehension strategies and they even show that all of those comprehension skills are woven into the strategies, but they're connected in a broader way. And so that the students will actually transfer and use them in real reading situations instead of just on a main idea practice page. I definitely want to take a look at that because I know strategies that work, but I don't think that I've looked at it in a very long time. And I'm sure that it's a really valuable resource. That's great. Because we've all had students in our class that seem to know main idea when we say, what's the main idea of this paragraph? And well, we do a couple it, things. Sure, in that moment. Right. But then you say, what is your book about? Or even what is this movie about? Or this, t- you know, this TV show you watch? And they can't really tell you right. what it's about. Yep. Okay? And that's how, that's the difference between a skill and a strategy. It's the strategy is the thinking behind it and where the students or aware of it. So they have the thinking ability because they have that strategy that they can apply during the reading. And then they also have the metacognition piece where they understand how the thinking helps them understand. So um, the book, uh, Strategies That Work, starts with simpler strategies. The easiest one is making connections because anybody can read a book. I'm seeing it with my kindergarten students. Anytime I pick up a book and start reading, they say, this reminds me of this, and this reminds me of this, and this reminds me of this. And, you know, everybody's got reminders. And so that's where you start. Okay. And then, and you model how, what that looks like when you have connections to books. And then you start, even at the first strategy of making connections, you say, okay, well, that reminds me of when I got angry in that situation. And so now I know how the character feels. So then let's bring it back to the story and let's think about our own feelings and the character's feelings. And now we understand that. And then, oh, can we think of another book where a character got angry? And that's when that, that's when the metacognition happens because you're aware of that connection, helping you understand the story better or connecting to a setting or connecting to a story problem. And then it goes into a little bit more complicated, um, asking questions mm-hmm. and then going into predicting and inferring and sort of, it sort of goes through like Bloom's taxonomy where it's the easier strategies first. And then as you go through the book, um, you get to the harder strategies, but I just wove this so much into my teaching when I was doing read alouds, when I was doing, um, mini lessons during my reader's workshop, when I was doing reading conferences and guided reading, I can um, see how lessons. it just be natural to your teaching um, using those types of strategies. And if you teach inferencing and you're teaching the students to look beyond the text and, okay, yeah. we're going to look at all of these, you know, they said that the character had a red face and they stomped their feet, you know, and steam was coming out of their ears. Okay, we only have clues, but what is the author showing us? Okay, we have to infer that that character's angry because once you get into chapter books, the author's not going to tell you everything. You have to infer some of it. So then we would turn that over in writing and we would try to write character details that way so that our readers could infer and that we were showing, not telling our readers everything. So I wouldn't let my third graders say this character's angry or this character's happy. Instead, they would have to show it so that the readers could infer. And so I wove these strategies into into my readers and writers workshop. And I just had tremendous success. I mean, when I implemented this in my classroom, I'm not going to brag, but I had amazing reading test scores because the students just applied it to any reading passage. And 
I wasn't doing any test taking skills or anything like that. I was just teaching the kids how to think. Yeah. That's what it is. It's yep. teaching kids how to think. And I think that's best comprehension practice. And then also showing them how it's connected in writing because you're reading someone else's writing. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And so read like a reader and read like a writer. I love that. And so that's what I think is best comprehension teaching. Cool. Ooh, good answer, Shannon. Yeah. That might have taken all of my points of concentration that that's I have okay. for today. We'll, we'll chat a little bit more um, because we had another reader, or excuse me, an, another listener who um, had asked a question about some more specific details about how to get into being a reading specialist. So I'll sort of take over a little bit on this. Yes, question. and I can actually... I can, you can find jump that in my memory. In? Yes. yes. I can share my stories about, because I got a reading specialist job at two different schools. So I'll share a little bit about how that happened. I'm so glad. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about how I responded. Um, so this person in particular was asking about getting additional training, um, specifically like with Orton Gillingham, or if there were any um, uh, resources that I recommended. So when I was trained, um, I was trained by a fellow of the Association of Orton Gillingham Practitioners and Educators, um, and they came to our district and trained teachers um, to be classroom educators certified. So um, that was my training. When I went back and became um, a dyslexia advocate, though, I did training at the Dyslexia Training Institute, which is actually um, out of San Diego, but it was all virtual. And I highly recommend it. They have um, some really nice courses if you would like to get an introduction to Orton Gillingham training um, and go on and get some further further certification in that area. Um, I love Sandy Hermit. Sandy Hurley. Oh, I'm mixing it up. I keep thinking she, Sandman. This Sanford one you've talked about? No, before? I'm no. so sorry. Uh, I will be Dr. Oh, it's Dr. Kelly. Kelly Hurley Sandman. Sanford. Oh, I had it. What's a smart goal? Ha ha. Who has a concussion in this room? <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> Mary will link to the correct name. <laughs> And website to go to that thing. I and call it her, mom brain, but uh, yeah. I don't. Her forgetting the name does not say anything about the quality of the program. It was a good program. <laughs> it's a fantastic program. It's so really look nice. in the show notes for the specific name and <laughs> thank you, Dyslexia <laughs> Training Institute. Um, okay, so but uh, let's talk a little bit about how you become a reading specialist within um, a school setting. Yes, so it's kind of political. Yeah. Okay. I can agree with that. Sometimes those jobs are who you know Mm -hmm. or the kind of reputation you have at your school. That's very true. And so the first time I was able to get a job um, doing that, it was after I put in place all that mosaic of thought and strategies that work, awesomeness, and my comprehension scores were very, very good. I said that at the beginning of us doing the podcast in the first few episodes that early in my career, I became good at... um, helping decent readers become better. Yeah. Okay. Because of the comprehension. Yeah. So, um, and so I was known, um, for being a good comprehension teacher. And even though I had a couple outliers that uh, couldn't decode very well in my classroom, cause I didn't yet know how to teach them that piece of reading, which is really the foundational skills, but I could help decent readers become better readers that helped me get that reading job. And I also was just so passionate about reading. I was talking about it in my school teacher's lounge. I was 
begging my principal, oh, this is this workshop. Can I please go to it? It's about reading styles. Can I please go to this? Can I go to this conference? Hey, look, I joined this professional organization and now I get all these books about reading and I'm reading Lucy Calkins for fun on the weekends. And <laughs> I became known as a reading nerd and yeah. that, you know, certain jobs open to you in that because you become your... Grade level reading go-to person or your school reading guru. And then you start to go beyond your school building and maybe you're one of the district people. But you have to just make it known that you're passionate about reading. You have success with your students. You try lots of things. You, um, you know, do action research with real readers and are a reflective practitioner and know what works and what doesn't work. And yes. I think you build your toolbox of strategies. It's really helpful to be um, a person who can deal with multiple different types of teachers and types of personalities, because a lot of people are going to come to you with um, issues and problems and um, feelings and emotions behind all of those. And you need to kind of be able to weave into that and, and be a trustworthy a trustworthy resource in your school. And so you need to be that person who is available when people have questions and you need to be, um, you know, a person who is action oriented and can say, Oh, I, here's what I did. Or here is a way that I had problem solved this or, Hey, I'm not exactly sure, but maybe you could try this. Um, or you might even be that person who, um, you say, you know, I'm teaching or modeling something like this. I'd be happy to have you come and watch this class. Yes, or administrators might notice that if they're doing a walkthrough or observation and they see your guided reading lesson and it's awesome or they watch your, you know, your reader's workshop and you're really phenomenal and then they might say, oh, I want to videotape you or I'm going to send a few other teachers to you or other teachers might say, hey, can I go, you know, this teacher has such good readings. You know, the students leave such strong readers. Can I go see what they're doing? All of that is going to build your um, reputation as a local reading specialist, and that's going to lead to those jobs. I would agree. Yep, yep. So you just need to build up your repertoire of background knowledge. Um, You need to build up your repertoire of resources and um, just strategies that work really well. And it happened to me. And be flexible. Yes. I switched school districts um, quite a few years ago. And I was at the job fair and I was interviewing for a regular classroom position because I knew I was starting over at a new school district. Nobody knew me. I didn't have that reputation yet. And in my interview, I just fawned on and on and on about reading and showed them so many reading resources that I had, you know, that were original creations of mine. And that was basically what was in my portfolio. And Mm -hmm. I even joked, I was like, ha ha, I can teach math and other subjects. I just love reading so much. And, um, the principal and the assistant principal looked at each other and kind of gave a little eye look to each other and then looked at me and said, well, actually we have an unposted reading job at our school. Do you want that job instead of a classroom job? And I'm like, yes! Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Getting so excited. Oh, yes. So I just, um, you know, just be a reading specialist and you will then you get will a reading one. specialist job. Mm-hmm. So, and now I'm currently back in the classroom, but I'm still a reading specialist in the classroom because mm-hmm. it, I think about my students reading and my reading groups and how my reading's going to go every day before I think of any other thing. Yeah. I have loved our listener questions 
so far. Me too. Please. Y'all keep asking them. I mean, we do have a lot of other things down the pipeline, and as my brain um, capacity returns, I we are so excited to do the balanced literacy episodes and a whole bunch of yes. other episodes that we have planned, but we might not get to them as soon in the season as we would like, because life because happens when you're busy making other plans, like John Lennon says. <laughs> That's so true. And but, we need just a little grace in that, and I love that our listeners are so kind. But if you do have any specific questions that you would like us to answer, please um, let us know. We are so excited to send um, correspondence back with our listeners. Yes, we, we will write you back um, privately through email or Facebook or Instagram message. Or if you want something that's addressed on air or we get a question that we think really, you know, could be um, would be interesting for a lot of our listeners, then we go ahead and, you know, address yeah. it on air. But We have a lot more content to bring to you this next season, and thank you for being with us um, Yeah, and listening and tuning in. We continue to grow listeners every day. We know that y'all are telling your neighbors about it and your colleagues about it, and we appreciate that so much. Yeah, absolutely. Go write us more reviews on iTunes because that helps us, other people discover us. Yeah, and and don't forget um, to share our social media as well if you see something that would be helpful to another teacher, um, Facebook and Instagram, uh, the reading... No, at Reading Teachers Lounge. Um, and if you want to email us, it's at readingteacherslounge at gmail.com. Thanks. Thank you, Jordan and Allie, for helping oh. us with the artwork and the music. They're the best. We'll link to them in our show notes this time, too. Big pictures and all. <laughs> all right. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. See you next time. <laughs>